to the season finale episode eight of let's talk tv true detective season one it's been a lot of fun to make it's been rewarding i've had a lot of fun doing this looking forward to the season three premiere on sunday if you want a place to talk about it with us you can subscribe to my patreon patreon.com slash reads rants for as low as two dollars you can get access to that two dollars per month uh, you can get access to that, and it's a way uh, to say that you support the movement and all the work. Uh, episode eight, here we go. I remember when I remember when this aired when I first watched it in 2014. I didn't really love it, and watching it again a couple times over the last week or so, I like it better, uh, but still not crazy about it. But episode eight, form and void, is the the rare season, right? Because most of these TV shows cannot completely put an end to a story, right? If you think about these other TV shows that have been great, Breaking Bad, you know, Game of Thrones, uh, The Wire, Sopranos, like all of that has to have more seasons to think about. But not here, not here. This was a standalone season, so we're able to to build up all of Episode 7. And then you get to Episode 8, and quite frankly, you're still having to build up a little bit, and we start back out on... Uh, we start out on the farm with Errol Childress, the Yellow King, and we get our first real big look of him and just how creepy he is. And first thing that really stands out is him standing shirtless, him standing shirtless in his dead father's room as he talks about bringing him water and stuff to take care of him and, uh, you know, maybe maybe helping uh, keep the body a little bit uh, from deteriorating. But one of the things I think you're supposed to notice here is, uh, whereas Reggie Ledoux, think back to Reggie Ledoux shirtless, he had the spiral tattoo. Here with Errol, which by the way, what a stupid name that is, Errol Childress, he's branded with the, the sign of Carcosa, the circular logo. Other people have willingly joined this cult or this this take on religion or whatever the hell you want to call it whereas Errol uh, has been branded you know from an early age he was brought into this maybe as the chosen one uh, maybe as the one who's supposed to carry on the legacy I don't know but he's I think you're supposed to kind of view him yeah he's this terrible monster but also not sure how much of a choice he's had and I think you get that a little bit uh, when you hear the difference in his voices earlier, he's talking in a, a country southern draw, and then when he's talking to his to his half sister, he goes to the uh, the British voice that he's either learned through the five thousand VHS tapes he has behind his TV, or you know basically just a way to kind of signify these these kind of personality disorders that someone like him who has been tortured and and beaten. Uh, for his entire life would kind of develop, would kind of develop. Uh, but you know, really creepy opening scene as uh, he and his step, or his half-sister, excuse me, talk about seeing flowers, and I'm assuming that is code for orgasms, and it is just a, a really creepy look uh, at the Yellow King, at the man who has been 
you know, been been chased the entire season. But you finally have gotten your look. You finally have gotten your eyes on uh, the guy who they've been after and exactly where he lives and what he's about. And it's about as uh, demented and sick as you think. It's a little cliche. It's a little cliche. And that's a part of why this season finale is a little questionable to me. I do think it's probably the worst episode of the season, but you got the headless dolls, the stacked DVD or the stacked VHSs, excuse me, <laughs> no DVDs, stacked VHSs, dolls, uh, just a really rundown house, which maybe that's kind of uh, part of him being the victim is just how warped he is. Like, how could he live a good life, but still couldn't, couldn't come out of this first scene without thinking, okay, A, it's really creepy. Like, don't get me wrong, but B, a little cliche, but the, uh, yeah, the sister and the flowers thing. Yeah, that's uh, something that stays with you. But we're back to Rust and Marty, and they are with uh, current sheriff, Geraci, uh, as they've shown him the tape, and now they are interrogating him. And and Geraci's like, hey, no, there's, this isn't me. Like, here, here's, here's my explanation. Here's why I – here's why the files got changed. It wasn't me. It wasn't me. And when I went back to follow up on it, the file said, report made an error. I never wrote that. So I marched it right into the sheriff, Ted Childress. He's dead now. He did it. What did the sheriff say? He said he'd changed it. That he knew the mother and the father, but the aunt and the uncle. It was a niece once removed from him or something. It's a chain of command. No reason to change it. I just follow what the big man says. It's how this all works. I, 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 I tried to get back with the mother. I tried to get back with her. She was gone. She split. The file was gone. Nobody said a word. Later that year, I was in state CID on Ted's recommendation. Nobody ever gave me a reason to second guess it. It's chain of command. Right. So there he is pleading for, you know, kind of his innocence, saying, look, it wasn't me. It was the sheriff, Sheriff Ted Childress. Childress. That's uh, the last name that we have known from um, the Dolores lady at the end of episode seven. That's the tall man with the scars. He he his last name's Childress. He's a bastard child. But here we go. Sheriff Ted Childress. He's the one who changed the report. Chain of command, chain of command. There was nothing I could do about it. And quite frankly, Dracy is guilty of not pursuing it further and just for letting it go away. Not doing real detective work, not really questioning while this is covered up. And then, you know, he's rewarded less than a year later with a promotion, which, of course, now now he's not going to now he's not going to question it. Uh, But Marty Rust let him off the hook, let him walk with some caveats. They're going to uh, be watching him. And, this, you know, the Russ's friend from the bar is there as a sniper kind of helping drive home the threat of we've got someone watching you. If something turns up missing, if we turn up missing, if something happens to us, uh, we're revealing, we're, 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 we are releasing this tape that we found on your possession of the of the Marie Fontenot um, satan- satanic ritual rape torture and you're going to go down for that but now we've kind of got uh you know another link to this ted childress the sheriff just kind of 
kind of gives you an idea of just how high this thing goes up. Uh, you know, just just how you know circular it is at the top in terms of the the power dynamic and you know this is this just goes higher than you would have thought it's not just the it's not just the church it's the the governor like you knew and of course it's not just the the one rogue governor it's the it's the policeman there in the town the state as well and you get a really creepy scene man you get a really creepy scene of uh errol errol watching after some kids as he's painting at a school really creepy We'll say though that in you know episode seven, episode eight, uh, all of a sudden Marty, Marty has learned how to be a a super cop. His policing skills are ten out of ten in the final two episodes. Maybe it's the George Costanza effect. Maybe with no women distracting him, no mistresses, no family, uh, no sex. Maybe all of a sudden now he is a really good detective. They keep going back to why does the the man with uh, spaghetti scars have why why does he have green ears? Rust being a little naive is like well I just assumed it was because he's coming out the trees the leaves, to which Marty starts thinking and looking at pictures and discovers there's a green paint job on Marie Fontenot's house back in the day and she had had a fresh paint job. To which Rust is blown away with Marty being able to to crack this case and now they have a new lead they're going to start checking uh, painting jobs around the area around that time they have a new break in the case throughout the season I've pointed out the you know some of the best scenes especially early on come when there's just a quiet moment in a vehicle right like when these two are riding around together uh, no different here in episode eight as this comes full circle and you have Marty and Russ riding around in a car and Marty's had something he needs to get off his chest that he says he's been thinking about uh, for the last 10 years. Something's been bugging me the last 10 years. Not every day, just now and then. We went at it. Day you quit. Were you holding back? No, I don't see how I could have. Oh, yeah, you do. You've always had such an inflated idea of yourself. Meaning what? Meaning it seems pretty damn arrogant to hold back in a fight with me. So for 10 years, 10 years, Marty says he's been thinking not so much about not so much about their breakup, not so much about his family life completely decaying. He's wondered for 10 years whether or not Rust was allowing Marty to punch him a little bit. Was he so cocky? Was he was he so unbothered that he held back instead of uh, instead of basically beating Marty's ass? Thought that was pretty telling and kind of just it's a it's a funny way, but also a sad way to to look back and, and kind of get a picture of of Marty's insecurities. Again, he's he wasn't necessarily as concerned about the relationship. Over the last ten years, it was more so just whether or not Rust, being the the type of guy who would allow Marty, or I guess the type of guy who would you know not go full speed in a fight because he didn't respect Marty as a man, and he's just kind of playing into some insecurities again. You think he could have put me down? 
to kill you. You're so goddamn mad. Yeah, um, <clears throat> you know, when she told me, she said not to blame you, that wasn't your choice. You uh, were drunk, and she made it happen. Everybody's got a choice, Marty. Shit, I sure blamed you. <laughs> Blame me for what? For pushing a good woman to the point where she had to use me, use our partnership to get rid of you. For just being a lying sack of shit. You know, she couldn't have used you. You didn't want some. There you go. Everybody's got a choice. I love, love, love this exchange. You know, as they're making this big case on, as they're making these big breaks on this case, like they're still finding time to to have this discussion because you've seen in the last episode when Russ asked Marty how his life has been, and that's the first time they'd really gotten you know kind of personal with each other in a positive way. Uh, this this friendship is kind of blossoming a little bit in a, in a weird in a weird way, so so much to the point where Marty is willing to give Russ a pass, right? He's saying, yeah, you know, Maggie, Maggie told me it wasn't you. It wasn't your fault. But Russ, being who he is, like, no, no, everyone has a choice. I made a choice. Like, he's not, he's not blaming Maggie for it anymore. Or he's not, you know, he's, you know, we kicked Maggie out of the, the, uh, the apartment. He blamed her. But now he realizes, hey, I had a choice. I had a choice. And then, of course, in their typical odd couple fashion, Russ says, hell, I was mad at you. I was mad at you, to which Marty's offended by, but Russ, you know, makes the point. Like, hey, I was mad at you for what you did to Maggie. Maggie was a great girl, and here you are uh, running, you know, pushing her into my arms just so she can get back at you. To which... You know, Marty still having that insecurity, still having that temper, still not being able to necessarily accept who he is and kind of being in denial a little bit. Well, then fires back. Well, you know, you you could have stopped it, which was you know, thirty seconds prior. That was that was Russ's whole point. Like, yeah, no, I could have. That's we all have choices. We all have choices. So here they are, uh, at least getting some type of closure to the, you know what drove them apart for a decade. And here they are 17 years later from the the very first, uh, basically the very first interaction we have with them in episode one, in the car, talking about life, arguing about philosophical differences. They do some more cop work. They do some more cop work. uh, Track down a family who, you know, back in the day had had their house painted green. Find out uh, it was with a company called Childress and Son Maintenance. Because, of course, it was. I mean, that was convenient, but, okay. Childress sends son maintenance. Obviously, we know that the Childress family is connected to this. They go back. They run the tax records, which, by the way, another ode to episode one where, you know, Russ is given the name Taxman, except this time it is it is Marty doing the work, running the taxes. They track down uh, who owned the business, where they lived, son's name, and now they have... Uh, you know the place where they're going to go and bust this case, and hopefully be able to to right some of the wrongs that have uh, you know consumed at least Russ's life for the last seventeen years. 
on the way there, uh, rust uh, gets a familiar taste, a familiar feeling that he's had, uh, you know, before uh, that he got in episode one while being around the uh, the the dead body that they originally had found. That taste. What? Aluminum. Ash. I tasted it before. Rust is able to to sense the evil that they are close to, and then they pull up to the Childress household. And yeah, it's obvious that he he knows he knows they're in the right place. Marty goes up to the door, uh, talks to the sister. He knows Marty knows he's in the right place. He's forceful with her, and as he's forceful with her, the the dog runs out and leads leads Rust to. To Arid, as you know, you hear the dog yelp as the dog's been killed. To which you know, Russ sprints out there too, as he tells Marty, "Hey, you secure the house," and he has an eye on the man he's been wanting to find for a decade, for seventeen years, and gives him the courteous, like, "Hey, stop!" To which, of course, he's going to say no, and then kind of comedically takes off running. And look, this is where it gets, this is where the finale gets bad for me. And I'm not going to, like I said, I, I appreciated it more on these next couple watches that I've done uh, since when I first watched it back in 2014. But as as Childress leads Rust to Carcosa, he's drawn in by the sounds of of Childress, who wants him to come in and find him. This is Carcosa. You know what they did to me? of things there from earlier when I said uh talked about him being a victim yeah they're trying to play that in right there when he talks about what they used to do to him what they used to do to him uh, what he's seen and how he is going to take it out on everyone's uh, children and then he points out rust killing his acolytes Reggie and wall and then at the end says hey come and die with me because if you've listened to anyone who's talked about Carcosa, if you think back to what Dolores said uh, last episode, death is not the end. Uh, it seems here that that both men, both Childress and Rust, are prepared to die right here in this standoff. You know, this go-round as I've watched this, um, I was hoping that... I was hoping that Childress talking to rust i was hoping that that was a part of rust and his hallucinations coming back around right like the distractions his his sixth sense almost i was hoping that that was kind of with it because it was it seemed hokey to me that you know this man has taken off sprinting through carcosa 
and he doesn't know where Rust exactly is, but he's talking to him the entire time, and of course he's not out of voice, and his his or he's not out of breath, excuse me, and his voice is echoing through these tunnels, finding Rust perfectly and helping lead him to this open area. I was hoping it was more of a hallucination, uh, but nope, nope. This is actually, we're supposed to believe that in this game of hide-and-go-seek that this man who has sprinted away from from Rust, that he has found him and has an eye on him and is perfectly calling to him. But as he gets out into the open, Rust then does have a hallucination as he sees a circle in the sky, maybe his dark circle that he has referenced in Episode 7, you know, getting ready to come to an end, and uh, Childress comes out with a knife and guts Colt sticks him right in the gut holds him up Rust is able to fight him off a little bit with some headbutts but he is badly gashed and by this time Marty has caught up and found him and he catches a hatchet to the chest and it looks like both of these men who were prepared to die in episode 7 who had both said their goodbyes and had shown that they didn't really have anything to live for it looks like we are going to see them go out in a blaze of glory but instead as as Childress is getting ready to finish off Marty, Cole gets a shot off, hits him right in the head, puts him down, and these two are saved. They're saved after uh, they, they, they sit there together as, as Russ battles consciousness and Marty holds him as they wait for Gilboy and Pepina, who, who Marty called in the house, to come and, and, and save them, to come and pick them up, to come uh, with backup. They get there, and luckily for them, they did call for backup this time. You know, unlike the shootout in 95 when these two men went after Ledoux and DeWall and went rogue, unlike that time, at least they had learned from their lesson 17 years prior and called for backup. And it helped keep them alive, as you later see in the hospital. Uh, Gilboy, Papina show up, try to start running through the case. Marty's just like, hey, hey, enough, enough. He goes, he checks on his friend, he goes and checks on his friend, everything's fine, and, you know, to which Rust is still bothered by the idea that these guys are out and about, and you hear a you hear a news flash, you hear a news report kind of come in and really drive home an important lesson, I think, and the news flash, the, the news flash talks about how uh, these men uh, were basically acting alone, that there is no... There is no connection to this elite family. And now the latest news update in the case of alleged Louisiana serial murderer, Errol William Childress. It's a story that first broke nationwide two weeks ago when two former police officers, now private detectives, released information to a number of news and law enforcement agencies. Our last update confirmed physical evidence at the suspect's home proved connections to dozens of missing persons. In the meantime, the state attorney general and the FBI have discredited rumors that the accused was in some way related to the family of Louisiana Senator Edwin Tuttle. Pretty painful scene as as Rust is laying there with a a bruised face, a badly bloody face, coming out of a of a mini coma as the news talks about the the actual perpetrators or maybe the you know the elite of the Tuttles who have helped spearhead this for decades now they've been exonerated by as high up as the fbi covering helping cover for them as again just the elite the elite's okay almost as if 
Rod Childress was just a, a patsy of sorts. Bothers Rust, and Rust also has to deal with the realization that that he he noticed this guy. He had, he had seen him in 95 and could have ended it all, uh, but, but didn't. I saw him, Marty. He was mowing that schoolyard in Pelican Island in 95. I couldn't tell how tall he was. He was sitting and his face was, was dirty, but I, I saw him. That's what's bugging you. Tuttle's committing the video. We didn't get them all. Yeah, and we ain't gonna get them all. That ain't what kind of world it is, but we got ours. So even after this closure, even after solving this crime and and getting the man thereafter rust is having to deal with the prospect of a the guilt of letting this man go whenever he was right in front of him and b uh, the the realization that the Tuttle family's still out there but marty's like hey man we got we got our guy we got our guy he's kind of able to move on we don't know if rust will or not we don't know if rust will or not but then you get the the final scene which is them going for a a little stroll and and talk, which is kind of driving home, bringing everything full circle. A, this friendship has grown past a partnership. They're pretty much all the two have left. They're pretty much all the two have left uh, when it comes to the end of this series. And Russ talks about whenever he was stabbed and whenever he was out of consciousness, kind of what helped him stay alive. It was like I was, I was a part of everything that I ever loved. And we were all, the three of us just, just fading out. And all I, I had to do was let go. And I did. I said, darkness, yeah. And I disappeared. But I could, I could still feel her love there, even more than before. Nothing, nothing but that love. <laughs> then I woke up. For someone who was so. Who, who scoffed and mocked religion earlier, or, you know, back in 95, earlier in the season. He has now kind of experienced a little bit of the afterlife and, and has tasted something as pure again as his, as his daughter's love and that it had gone stronger as if she had been living life with him and he had seen his dad. Like he said, everything that he had loved had been there waiting for him. And kind of kept him warm and kind of kind of reminded him of love and gave him a little bit of hope. And then, you know, you kind of get the 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 final monologue as we kind of put this show to bed. And, you know, of course, this show has been about good versus evil, right? Light versus darkness. Men who try to stop evil. Like kind of the idea that if you don't try to stop evil, 
then you are evil, right? Let's, let's think back to the, the debt that was owed and, and them knowing about the evil and you know, helping hide it by making people think it was solved. Men are supposed to, you know, men, women too, just like mankind is supposed to try to stop evil when they can. It's just one story. The oldest. What's that? Light versus dark. Well, I know we ain't in Alaska, but here's to me that the dark has a lot more territory. Marty, of course, replies that the dark has more territory, both literally and figuratively as they look up at the sky, right? The sky is pitch black, but there are some stars, some speckles of light there giving some type of hope, but saying, you know, both in the sky and in the world, there's just a lot of evil, right? Like Marty has become the pessimist a bit. Marty, in 1995, believed in the good of people, believed that things weren't so bad. Now, between his experiences, in this case, and the, the baby in the microwave, and just everything that he's gone through, you know, he's a little bit more pessimistic than he was. But you have, on the flip side, you have Rust, who was the ultimate pessimist, or realist, as he called it. Uh, he sees things a little bit differently. You know, you're looking at her on the sky thing. How's that? I want to say it was only dark. When you ask any lights went out. <laughs> the eternal pessimist has now found hope. Has now found hope and comfort, and both of them live and survive through this. Despite the last episode, despite the last episode in terms of, you know, a little, going a little cliche with the killer and the, the scene, the chase, like I said, the, the hide-and-go-seek trope, of course, there are there there has been religious undertones and politic, political undertones in this in this series. How those are connected, how powerful those are in the old guard, right? With the old guard, with the old state, like uh, you don't question religion, you don't question the church, and that allowed Reverend Tuttle to hot in plain sight as it did the governor with the political ties and just the power they were ob- uh, you know able to to wield over people it, it touches on that it touches on the idea of rust and marty's relationship of course like i said earlier uh, the idea that evil will prevail when good men do nothing, how how you kind of have a debt to try to make the world a better place, to try to stop evil when you can. We're all kind of in this together type of thing. Much like Rust was talking about marching hand-in-hand into extinction, you kind of have to march hand-in-hand as you battle evil. The, The director laid it out 
when he said that this this show at its core is about what happens when horror comes to our doorstep. And also the people we become after that encounter. Like, how do we handle that? How do we respond to that? It takes its toll on you. It can. But even as it takes its toll on you, you're supposed to kind of fight it. You're supposed to kind of fight it. Overall, the finale keeps this from being truly one of the greatest shows of all time. Fizzled out a little bit. Still, I would give True Detective Season 1 a 9 out of 10. A 9 out of 10. Alright, we'll do True Detective Season 3. I should have it up hopefully by Monday afternoon. The the premieres on, on Sunday. I'm hoping I can have one of these up by Monday evening. And then we'll have a little bit more time to dissect and talk about it uh, throughout the week. We'll do this for Game of Thrones as well. Let's talk TV. Go to my uh, my podcast link. Go to iTunes, Stitcher. Subscribe to Reed's Ranch. Leave a five-star review. If you want to be a part of the conversation and have a direct kind of a message board feel to it, like I said, if you if you, if you you appreciate these and you want to be a part of these and support, patreon.com slash Reed's Ranch. We'll talk soon.